Amen. I don't know about you guys, but I was getting a little bit worked up. Damn, that laugh is getting awful close. You know what I'm saying? Luckily for all of you, I did not dance because that's nothing that anyone needs to be exposed to ever. Just not a good idea. Um, no, this morning we're so excited to continue our series and uh, working through this topic of culture wars. And uh, before we get into the message this morning, I just want to say it's really, really cool uh, to have Laura Osborne with us. She's uh, home from college for a weekend, and uh, you guys can applaud that. That's okay. That was if you're gonna if you're gonna clap, a clap. Don't come on. Oh, yeah, it was wow, crazy. Uh, no, she's home for the weekend, and so visiting the family, so having a great time over at Spring Harbor University. And so enjoying that time over there. And so, um, yeah, just really great to have her with us. And so I'm sure mom and dad are happy to have her home for a couple of days. And so, yeah, Maria's going to be, yeah, technically, see, that's a mom talking. I'm like, she's home for a weekend. It's less than a weekend, okay? It's like a day and a half. Yes, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, but it's great to have her with us. And so uh, really excited about that. So, uh, but thank you for being here. As we talk through this idea of culture wars, uh, we're continuing this series and uh, we discovered last week, as we kind of began this journey, uh, that the culture around us, uh, as Maria kind of hinted to this morning before worship began, uh, the culture around us is one that can truly be, I mean, just all around us there's hatred and violence. And we went to Romans chapter 1, and, and I encourage you to look into it a little bit more. But when you look at the world around us, it's really easy to start thinking, man, there's nothing good. It's just all bad all the time. And just so you know, the more news you watch, the more you're going to think that. But let's be honest, there's some truth to that, right? There is a lot of bad stuff happening in the world around us. There's a lot of evil things that take place in the culture around us. But I don't want you to get a misunderstanding here. It does not mean that just because the world is getting darker and darker does not mean that we can't affect change for the cause of Christ. That we can make a difference in the world around us. As we understand the culture, as we talked about last week, we also need to understand that we as followers of Christ go into that culture and make a difference for Christ. Make a difference for his kingdom and make a difference in the lives of the people in the world around us. Today we'll be talking about engaging that culture. Last week we talked about understanding the culture. This morning we talked about engaging the culture without compromising our biblical foundations. You can turn to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to read it in just a moment. But Daniel chapter 1, we're going to look at just a few verses to give us an idea, kind of a springboard into this topic of understanding how we engage the culture around us. We know the culture has some problems. We talked about that last week. We went to Romans chapter 1 and we said, man, there's a lot of negative things around us. Humanly speaking, there's a lot of evil around us, a lot of violence and hatred. I mean, things that we're seeing on the news all the time about people that make these decisions that just turn our stomachs when we think about what people can do to each other. I mean, just the ways that humanity has created to hurt each other to go after each other and to, to war with one another. And it can just drive us to a point of thinking, man, it's all bad all the time. And so how do we then, if that's the culture around us, how in the world do we take Christ into that culture? How do we engage that kind of a world with Christ? We're going to look in Daniel chapter 1 in just a moment. Let me be clear on this. Last week as we expressed this idea that because the culture around us is fallen and broken by sin, which it is, the human world around us, the Bible says, is broken and fallen because of sin in the world. That God's perfect design, when in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, when he says it is good, and he finished the final day of creation, and he took that day of rest, and he said, it is good what I have made. And then sin, in Genesis 3, enters into that creation, and everything from that point to now is broken and fallen and affected by sin. How is it that people can treat each other the way they do and hurt each other the way they do? It's easy. It's because of sin in us. The same sin that's in you. And as we understand the culture, we understand even greater what Christ saved us from. And when you understand what you were in the eyes of God, you had fallen from his perfect standard because of sin. And then you read that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross for your sins, to be buried in a borrowed tomb, to rise again the third day, and that putting simple faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sins, acknowledging that he is Lord of your life, acknowledging you need him as your Savior, 
putting your faith and your trust in Christ and believing on him to save you from your sins, that he saves you from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin in this world. And now we begin to live differently as followers of Christ. And so here, when we understand the culture around us is fallen and broken, how in the world do we engage that type of a culture? Well, the reality is that, yes, there's a lot of negative in our world, but let's be honest this morning. Because sometimes I think in church, we talk about the world around us in only negative contexts. But I believe if we're really being honest, there is good around us too. Not good unto salvation as we get to in a minute, but good works. Listen, there are a lot of good people doing good things in the world. And if we're not careful, I didn't want to give you the context of the idea last week that just because the world has its issues and their sin and it's, it's broken, that we can't somehow also acknowledge, but man, there's some good people doing good things in the world around us. And we can acknowledge that. We can be truthful about that. I truly believe that, for example, what we saw with all these hurricanes. I mean, think about all the people that, that volunteered hours upon hours upon hours of time to help. Money that was given. Red Cross and other movements of things that were happening to try to help these people that were losing everything. And you can acknowledge that, listen, it's good people doing good things. And I think sometimes as Christians, we, we tend to not do that. We somehow feel that if we acknowledge it as a good person doing a good thing, that we're somehow validating that's all they need to be and therefore don't need Christ. That's not what we're saying. We're not saying that, but we're saying that, listen, just because the world around us has its problems and it's broken and it's fallen, there's, there's countless numbers of people doing really bad things. There's also countless numbers of people that are doing good things. And man, I want to rally around those people. I want to encourage those people. Listen, here in December, just to give you a little bit of a heads up, we're going to be ringing bell again for Salvation Army. And there's going to be people that are going to volunteer days that we're not there, that aren't Christian, that are just ringing a bell because they want to do a good thing for kids and help families in need in Lapeer County. And they're going to step up and serve and give their time. It's okay to tell them, thank you for doing that. That's good of you to do that. We can acknowledge there's good in the world around us. I believe we can recognize these acts as good and realize that although the culture around us may be crazy and full of all kinds of evils, there are people that are genuinely desiring to do good for other people. The key to remember as a follower of Christ is that while we recognize and honor the good Samaritans, if you will, we also acknowledge that those good acts do not gain salvation or pardon sin for the one doing the good work. We can acknowledge it's good. We can, we can encourage the good things. Man, listen, we want to be a voice of positive change in the world today. So if you hear of something that's going on, a, a charity or a thing through your work, but it's not Christian-based, man, find out a lot about it. Do your homework, because some of those aren't really, in essence, doing good things when you find out behind the scenes. But if it's one that you feel like, man, I can support this, I can encourage this, it's not exactly what I would believe as a Christian, but man, they're doing good things for good people trying to help those in need. Man, get around that thing. Rally around that thing so that you can say, man, I want to affect change not just in the Christian realm, but I want to engage my culture so that through that outlet, maybe I can make a difference for Christ in some way. You see, we need to be careful that we don't go too far. It's kind of what we're getting at here. The spectrum is either if it's in the world, it's of the world, and it's evil, or it's all good, good works are fine, that'll get you to heaven, just be a good person. Those are kind of the two ends of the spectrum. And as a follower of Christ, we acknowledge that there is good in the world as there is evil. But the key to remember is that that good in the world does not gain salvation, it doesn't pardon sin. And that's where we come in as a church. That's why we need to engage the culture with the message of Christ. We carry the message of hope that will bring eternal life. So we engage the culture with that message, and live it out in our lives. Let me say that again. We carry the message of hope that will bring eternal life. So we engage the culture with that message of hope and then live it out in our lives. I want us to be careful here. because After last week, I started thinking about this, and I was like, I don't want people to leave here thinking, oh man, it's all doom and gloom. There's no good anywhere. Listen, let's be honest, sin has affected our world and it's devastated it to where even good things may not be good things. 
But just because it's in the world doesn't necessarily make it evil. You've got to be careful there. I want us to acknowledge good people doing good things. And sometimes I think the church has kind of refused to do that because it wasn't necessarily Christian. And I'm not saying it brings salvation. I'm not saying it pardons sin. What I'm saying is it's okay to acknowledge that because guess what? It, I would rather have more people doing good in the world than evil. And if we can encourage the church just starting at do good things for helping people, and we start there and we lead someone through that to salvation, man, I'm good with that. I'm good with that. So sometimes I think we get a little bit twisted on this. We get a little bit confused on this. We have to be willing to engage our culture because they need a message of hope. But how you do that, how you engage your culture, may be very unique to your situation and where you are right now in your life. To engage the culture around us for Christ's gospel purpose requires us to be willing to do a couple things. Now, this is just a couple thoughts that I jotted down. This is not exhaustive. But I believe to engage the culture for Christ's gospel purpose requires us to be willing to do a couple things. Next week, we'll get into the idea of rejecting some things in culture. What are those lines we should not be crossing as followers of Christ? We'll talk about that next week. But this morning, I want to start thinking about what do I need to do to even begin engaging the culture around me? What does that even mean? Daniel chapter 1, look at verse 8. Very familiar passage, very familiar verse. Many of you probably memorized this as a child. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 says this, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. What in the world is going on here? Why in the world is Daniel making this stand? What does this even mean to defile with the king's meat? What is that even talking about? From the life of Daniel, I believe that we can see the first thing we must be willing to do to engage our culture is we must be willing to adapt. We must be willing to adapt. Go up to verse 3 of Daniel chapter 1. It says here that the king spake and said he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Verse 4. These are the children that are brought in before him, before the king. Children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, as such as had ability in them to stand in the king's place, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof he might stand before the king. And when you go into verses 6, and seven, you're going to find out that some names were changed as well. In verse seven, you find out that he gave Daniel the name of Belteshazzar. So what is happening in this story? Well, here's the gist of it real quick. Daniel is an Israelite, a Hebrew, and the Babylonians have come in and captured Israel, captured Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And they've taken them into captivity. And they started to pick out from among the captives the ones that were younger and that were really wise and intelligent and kind of, in essence, good-looking, well-favored. And they would take these kind of top-of-the-class kind of people, and then they begin to just immerse them in Babylonian culture, immerse them in their science, immerse them in their language, beginning to teach them all the things that would make them, in essence, culturally Babylonian. And then what the Babylonians would do is they would then send those people back out to their homelands. And what are those people, after years of being immersed in this other culture, when they get back to their homeland, what do the Babylonians hope will happen? That they will begin to spread their Babylonian culture instead of the culture they came out of. So they begin to kind of change them in their way of understanding and learning. And even in this case, what happens with Daniel? His very name changes. But verse 8 is so key because Daniel had a line. Daniel had a, 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 land, a line in the sand. He said, I'm not crossing that line. I'm not doing this because that will break God's law in my life. That will defile me before my God. And it's not changing his name. It wasn't learning their science. It wasn't learning their language. It wasn't learning their culture. None of that caused Daniel to say, nope, I can't do that because that would defile me before my God. It was only when it was a direct contradiction to a law, to a command that Daniel had received of God that he said, I cannot do that. You see, we must be willing to adapt. 
but we adapt without compromising God's truth. Daniel was taken into a foreign culture and forced to learn their language, science, and religion. They even changed his name to a name, Belteshazzar. The name Bel there in his name is reference to their idol, to their God. Belteshazzar is a name that references praising their idol God. Daniel willfully took a name that he would be called that would actually acknowledge an idol God. And Daniel's okay with that. He doesn't have a problem with that. He said, you want to call me that? You can call me that. Now, see, this is where I'm, I'm trying to get us to understand. Man, Daniel was really adapting to the world around him, wasn't he? Was it his choice? Not so much. It was more forced, but he wasn't fighting it either. He wasn't standing against it. He was willing to immerse himself in that culture. And this really shouldn't surprise us. What does this sound like to us when I decide to change my cultural norms for someone else's cultural norm, learning their language, their customs, their food, their habits, maybe even changing my name to a name that's culturally acceptable to them? What does that sound like? You guys are whispering it. Assimilation. What, what, who does that? Missionaries do that all the time. They'll go into a culture and they'll begin to immerse themselves in that culture to learn as much about the people. Why? Because if I understand a person's culture, I can understand how to reach them for Christ. When I understand why they do the things they do. But what did Daniel show us? He was willing to adapt to the culture, but not to compromise God's truth in his life. He said, this is the, the line in the sand I'm drawing. I won't do that. Now he rejects it in a way honorably and, and righteously. He, he graciously asks for this favor of, can we not have the king's meat? Can we eat this instead? And, and I guarantee you we'll be just as good, if not better, than the ones that eat the meat. He puts it out there as an offer. But I've always wondered, why didn't he resist anything else? Why did he not fight the name change, the cultural learning, the science? Maybe because Daniel understood that if I can understand these Babylonians and their culture and the way they think, you think the way you think because of your culture. I've always loved, we reference this so many times about Wyumi, but it always blows me away with what uh, new tribes, now Ethnos 360, what they've learned and done. And I always encourage people to do this. When you go to lunch today, watch how people eat. Like not stalker-like, don't like freak them out, like pull out the phone. Like, can I just sit with you for a moment and just watch you eat? Police will be involved, okay? Don't do that. But just go and watch people eat, and it's amazing. Culturally, we eat the way we eat because we've been trained. We always told our students when we go to Wyumi, when you go get fast food after Wyumi, the leader said this, and we would encourage the students to try to do it. We could never do it without laughing. You've got to do it without laughing. But go to, like, Burger King. Get a burger, sit down with some other people, flip the burger over, and eat it upside down. Watch how many people will look at you like you're crazy. And they'll ask you, why are you eating that upside down? But why is it upside down? Because culture says this is how you eat a hamburger. You eat it this way. This is the top bun. This is the bottom bun. And we'll say this. It just makes sense. But it makes sense to you because it's your culture. See, Daniel understood. I can immerse myself in this culture and yet not violate God's truth. And that's what he's doing here. Daniel seemingly goes along with all of it, as do the other Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They all go along with it too. Their names are changed. They're taught different things. But we're going to find out in a little bit here later on in Daniel, they have a point of a line they won't cross. When they're said, everybody will bow down and worship this image, they said, no, 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 we're going to stand. No, we're not going to bow down and worship your idol because we believe we need to worship our God above all things. That was their line in the sand. They were cool with everything else up to that point. And so what do we need to learn from this? I believe in principle, we need to learn that we can adapt to our culture around us just because it's in the culture doesn't make it wrong. But we will have things we need to stand on. We will have things that we're not going to do as we'll get more into next week because the, the, the Word of God says not to. This adapting also does not involve immodest dress. Right? Just because something is popular, this is more for the younger people here, or if you're tempted in this way, just because culture says that's what you should wear doesn't mean that's what you should wear. we got to be still using that understanding there. It doesn't mean that you involve modest dress or immodest dress or secular music. Well, I listen to this music because my culture listens to this music. That needs to be something you can say, man, what's in this music? Is, what's in this music? Is it going to point me to Christ or pull me away from Christ? 
But that's something you need to begin to decide. Where's those lines in the sand? The idea is we do this or that not to appeal to the culture as a motivating factor, not to fit into the culture just to fit into the culture. What I mean by adapting is that we live and function in the world and we accept the norms of the culture that do not contradict the word of God. We have to remember that just because something is in the culture and accepted by the culture doesn't necessarily make it bad or wrong. We engage the culture. We learn about the world around us. We be, we're willing to step outside of our understanding of something and what's comfortable to us. And we maybe stretch ourselves a little bit, not so that the culture will say, okay, we accept you, but so that we can understand other people so we can reach them for Christ. Remember, our whole emphasis of engaging the culture around us is not to fit into the culture and to be accepted by them. It's to then reach them with the gospel of Christ. I really hope we're, kind of, we're all kind of clicking on this here. Because I think in reaction to understanding how dangerous and evil and crazy the world is around us, our reaction is not to engage that, but to run from that. Like we isolate ourselves from that. And if we can be really honest, a very short study of church history in the last 60 years shows us that doesn't work. In the 60s and 70s, during this cultural revolution, the church, for the vast majority, rather than engage the culture, retreated from the culture, barred themselves in their churches, began worrying more about policing in the church than engaging the culture around them. And in essence, what happened is, slowly but surely, the church lost its power and influence in the culture. Some of you grew up in churches like this where they cared more about how long your skirt was. And I'm not talking about immodest. I'm talking like down to the floor, okay? Or that you wear a certain thing on a certain day and you don't dare dress down. It was more about policing that in the church than it was about equipping the saints to go and do the ministry of reaching the world for Christ. And that's what I want us to understand. Listen, as the world gets crazier... Our mission is not, oh, okay, because it's gotten so bad, now the church can kind of pull back and not engage. No, if anything, we need to be doing, what does Hebrews 10 say? Encouraging the more, getting more after it. But it's not that we just compromise on everything. And this is where the next part comes in. We adapt with his wisdom. We adapt with his wisdom. We have been given the spirit of the living God. Can we just stop for a minute and say praise God for that? Man, there is nothing greater in my life than understanding that God is with me 24-7. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. There's also nothing more convicting at times in my life than knowing the Holy Spirit is with me 24-7. I mean, we think about it in the positive, like, oh, praise God, your presence is always with me. But then we'll do something we know we're not supposed to do, and we'll go, oh, man, your presence is always with me. Because he's right there with you. Man, he's always with us. And so why did he give us his spirit? Why have we been blessed with his spirit? So that that spirit that lives with us and in us is able to guide us and lead us into all truth. When we are deciding what areas to adapt to our culture, we must allow him the freedom to lead us. This is how we will know what areas to be flexible in and which areas to stand against. And again, we'll break that down more next week, give some more specific practical examples of that. But it is his voice that we are listening to, not so much the voice of the culture when deciding how we live in this world. See, we listen to his voice. We want to know, okay, as I'm immersing myself in this culture around me, I have a gospel-centered mindset. I'm, I'm engaging the world around me in function and purpose. I'm out in the world, but I don't want to be of the world. I understand the world is crazy and there's evils. So how do I engage this culture without surrendering any of these biblical principles? Man, we can't decide that on our own. You don't have the wisdom to do that. Because you're going to get caught up and pulled into thinking like the world thinks. But if you say, okay, Holy Spirit, would you fill me? Man, I've always said it before. I think as Baptists, sometimes we're almost afraid of the Holy Spirit. Because some of our brothers and sisters in other denominations that have gone a little farther with that, maybe to extremes that we would say, mm, I don't know about that. So we in reaction say, I don't want any of it. And so some of your prayer lives consist of you pray to the Father, you end in Jesus' name, but you never ask the Spirit to do any of the things that he says he wants to do in your life. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit, fill me with great wisdom. 
You know, James 1 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God to give to all men liberally and abradeth not. How does he give us his wisdom? By the working of the Holy Spirit through the understanding of his word. And he affirms these things, and we can learn from his wisdom. Man, where do those things? Listen, as a mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, as you begin to kind of make those boundaries for your children, which, by the way, boundaries are very good. Your child will not think a boundary is good, but a boundary is good, healthy, and needed. Listen, a 15-year-old, a 10-year-old doesn't understand a boundary. They see that as what? A hindrance to fun. I experienced this Wednesday nights. You want transparency? Here's the pastor's family for you, okay? Wednesday night before church, my oldest son. Don't, don't embarrass him about this. I just want you to know this happens. Comes walking down the hallway, can't move. Because he was sitting on a table and the table slipped and fell and he hit his back onto the table in the wall. Knocked the wind right out of him. And as soon as he gets down to the, to the office here and we're talking about it, and he's like, you know, kind of, work, he's calming down. And he said, man, I feel really dumb for doing that. You know what the dad answer is, right? What's a dad going to say in that? Well, a mom's going to say something different. What's a dad going to say? This is exactly why I've told you not to do that. Now, is that really the time for that? No. <laughs> no. What's a mom going to say? I'm just so glad you're okay. Come here. You're all right. Right? A dad's like, are you bleeding? No. Let's go. What are you doing? Maybe that's just my morbid childhood. Some of you are like, you're messed up. Um, but I remember thinking that I'm like, this is what, see, about, I've told him so many times, don't play on the tables. Do you ever realize the things we tell children not to do that really shouldn't be told? Don't play on the tables. Why does it have to be explained? And then it reminds me of how God talks to us as children. Hey, you really should listen to me on this because it's better for you. Should he really have to, it convinces us of that. Shouldn't it isn't just common sense? Oh, I should listen to him. He is God. Do you see how it's so similar? I mean, see that boundary that we put around, and I told Anthony, don't play on the tables. It's not because tables are so much fun and I want to hinder your fun. And, you know, that's just way too much fun for you at 10 years old to play on the table. No, it's because there's a great likelihood you could hurt yourself, okay? And that's what I want us to understand. That was when we understand with wisdom, his wisdom, we set these boundaries in our culture. We engage the culture. We don't hide from it. We don't retreat to our churches. I mean, I'm all for This is a sanctuary. We call this a sanctuary. Why do we call it a sanctuary? Because it's a safe place that we can come and worship God and honor him and share who we really are and be genuine and true and real. And so I love that we still have that term in our vocabulary as Christians. I don't think there's anything wrong with calling this a sanctuary. Because that's what it is. It's a place to come for rest and strength and encouragement. But here's the problem. When we think by sanctuary, we mean it's a place we come to hide. A place to come to retreat from the world around us. That's not what we're doing. And we're here because we want to be strengthened and encouraged for what purpose? With his wisdom to go engage the culture so that Christ could be glorified. And his gospel would go forth. We need his wisdom. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, that I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Do you ever feel like a sheep among wolves? That's what we're talking about, understanding the culture. Listen, it is crazy out there. And as a follower of Christ, you're going to be put in some tough situations. You're going to feel like you're under attack and under persecution. But I'm so thankful for Renee's song because sometimes in the greatest persecutions, trials and struggles, you will draw the closest to Christ. And he will fill you with his peace and his presence. And you'll wonder, why did I ever fear engaging the culture? Because he is with me. Matthew chapter, uh, the end of Matthew, uh, the gospel of Matthew, it says that I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, even unto the end of the world. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. I started reading it. I'll finish it out here. I sent you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. What is he saying? As you're engaging the culture, there's wolves Man, there's, there's danger out there. By the way, who wins between a wolf and a sheep? The wolf, right? Like, this is practical Discovery Channel stuff, right? Like, if you ever turn on Discovery Channel and there's a wolf going after a sheep, just know that sheep's toast. Like, that's not going to work well for the sheep, right? That's the imagery that Christ is pulling here. It makes sense. The wolf is going to seem more powerful, more deadly, and the sheep seems weak. But the idea here when he says, sheeps among wolves and be harmless as doves but wise as serpents, it's this play on words. It's saying that as a sheep, a follower of Christ, which we are sheep, 
but I'm so thankful we have a shepherd. We are sheep. And the idea there of a, shep, a sheep or a dove is to be vulnerable, to be transparent. It's saying that I am just open before those that I serve. I'm not coming in a hardness, but I'm being vulnerable. Okay, I'm, I'm vulnerable in a sense that I'm just, I'm following Christ and wherever it takes me, I'm willing to go. I'm being transparent and open. But then he says this, wise as serpents. So what is that talking about? Many a commentary might even omit talking about this part of the verse. But those that talk about it, or if you study it out, the idea here is that wise as a serpent deals with the idea of self-preservation. Or basically, don't be naive. Don't be naive. Don't be, don't be convinced by, by cunning ways of the culture around us to trick us and to trap us. So what is Christ saying? What's the balance here? I go in vulnerability. I go in, in, a, in a kind of a, a sense of transparency. But I go with wisdom from the Holy Spirit so that I'm not taken advantage of. I don't go in naive. I understand the culture around me. And as I engage it, I understand the protections I need to have over my life. Now, this doesn't mean we don't go to dangerous places. This doesn't mean we don't go somewhere that's physically harmful to you potentially. It means as you go, you use great wisdom when you're there. We just don't go naive and think, oh, it's all good, rainbows and sunshine. We understand, no, the world can be a crazy place. So we need to understand that going into that. So we adapt with his wisdom, but we adapt without compromising biblical truth. The second thing we must do to be able to engage the culture is not just to adapt to some of the cultural norms, to be willing to leave our churches and our safety nets and step out into the world, not to be of the world, but to be in the world. We must be willing, number two, to have comp compassion. To have compassion. We don't compromise, but we have compassion. You see, we have compassion as Jesus did. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Turn over there with me real quick. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. I don't know about you guys. I think I'm going to go join that class. That sounds like some fun over there, boy. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. says this, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. See, Jesus showed great compassion on the multitudes. And what drove that compassion? What led him to come to the conclusion that I need to show compassion to these people? He says they were wandering. They had no shepherd. They were just in the wilderness with no hope of direction or leadership. You see, I believe that we in this culture must have compassion as we look at the world around us. And we do it as Jesus did. Why? Because we understand that just as Jesus saw the multitudes without a shepherd, you and I see that people around us need the ultimate shepherd, Christ Jesus, the great shepherd, the good shepherd. They need his care and provision. Compassion does not mean we ignore the actions of those around us. It means we understand their actions with great compassion because they have no shepherd to lead them. They have no wisdom to guide them. They have nobody to step up and to lead them in how they should live in a way that would be honoring to the Father. Jesus saw this multitude of people with no shepherd and he is truly heartbroken because his creation is living as dead men with no purpose no joy, and that joy only comes from knowing your shepherd, but not just knowing him, but knowing his love and his care, his provision and his protection, his guidance and his wisdom. I love John chapter 15. We studied it this uh, last week in the men's Bible study. And it talked about what was the reason that Jesus said, abide in me. Abide in me. He said it over and over again. Why? He says at the very end, so that your joy may be full. That my joy in you would be complete or mature or perfected and that your joy might be full. Man, there is nothing greater than not only knowing of the shepherd, having knowledge of the shepherd, but intimately following that shepherd, and watching him care and provide and lead, guide and direct in our lives. But what about those that don't have that? 
What about those that don't have that shepherd to lead them? And you see them committing these heinous acts. What do we do? It doesn't mean we ignore the actions, but man, in face of the action, we understand they just don't have a shepherd. So what's the solution? What's the, what's the way we fix the problem? It's not just telling them how bad they are. It's telling them who the shepherd is. It's engaging the culture so they can understand, man, why do I live this way? Why do I have these desires? Why do I want to do these evil works? And we understand that comes from not knowing the shepherd. But man, praise God when we go with compassion and not anger and hatred. I mentioned it last week. I am so frustrated when I see Christians engaging the culture with hatred and anger and aggression. Man, Jesus said, my heart is broken for you. But we not only are willing to have compassion because Jesus did, we're willing to have compassion because we just should. And I was really working on that point all week. I was typing it. How am I going to say this? In some homiletically correct way, some way that makes sense. And I was typing it out, and I'm like, no, I don't like that. Backspace, backspace. And the best I could come up with is as we should. So I don't know if that's good or not, but write that down. Because it seemed like it was what the Holy Spirit was giving me. So it's good for someone in here. Someone just got blessed. Someone just got saved from that alone right there. That's how good that wording is. We're willing to have compassion as Jesus did, but we're willing to have compassion because we just should. It just, it's just common sense. When we follow the shepherd who is compassionate, what should we then be as followers of Christ? Compassionate for the world around us. Luke chapter 10. Turn over there real quick. I know we're going to a few different verses. Thank you for bringing your Bibles. Luke chapter 10. And I want to look at a passage that's, again, very familiar to us but one that would help us understand what this compassion looks like as we engage the culture around us. If you don't have a Bible this morning, please, again, don't feel weird about that. I say this all the time, but I want you to really know that. Uh, if you would like a Bible, you can go to the Welcome Center following service. You can get one. Uh, we're not going to ask any questions or make you sign anything. We just want to give you a Bible. If you have a device, tablet, or your phone or something, you can download our app, North Goodland, B.C., and there's a Bible app right on there too. So I really want you to have the Bible in your hands so you can read the words of God for yourself. And so if that's you this morning, you don't have a Bible, you're not able to turn with us, please uh, let us help you with that. Let us get you one so you can have that to go home with today and you can read these words for yourself. Luke chapter 10, look at verse 30. Luke chapter 10 and verse 30 says this. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. So what's the culture? How would you describe the culture around this time with these thieves and their mindset? It's similar. It's evil. It's driven by hatred. See, again, not, we could read this in the news today, that somebody was pulled over on the side of the road and they got pulled out of their car and beaten half to death and everything was stolen from them and they were just left for dead. You could read that on, on any newspaper tomorrow morning. That could happen today. Not much has changed in the culture. There was evil then, there's evil now. He goes on to say this in verse 31. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had, what's the word? Compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him into an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. This guy doesn't know this guy from Adam. They're not friends. They're not relatives. This guy merely saw someone in need and did what really anyone should have done. We call this story, this parable, the good Samaritan, who really wasn't good at all. He just merely did what anyone should do with someone in need. But I love this story because it describes the difference in principle of engaging the culture or merely passing through life consumed with your own desires, too busy and too focused on your things to get involved. I love that we see this parallel here, that there's the one group that is just, you know what, I just don't have time for that. I got my own thing going on. I don't have time to engage this person and to help this person. And then you've got this person who comes by that engages the culture. And how does he engage the culture? This is key for us too. He engaged the culture by engaging 
a person by interacting with a human being? Does he stop to check his spiritual standing before God? Does he find out what he can give him? Does he find out if he can pay him back for this money that he's setting him up in this inn? He doesn't ask a question. He doesn't care because his motivation is what? The same as Christ's in Mac and Matthew, compassion. Man, his heart was just broken for this guy. There are three men or three individuals that pass by in this story. And this is a parable. This is a story. This is, this is a story that Jesus used to illustrate a spiritual principle. And some people take every part of this parable, this one specifically, and make everything mean something. And we've got to be careful not to do that. Because Jesus' point is merely this. Who showed love to his neighbor? Who showed love to this man that was robbed and broken down and, and wounded? What well, was the Good Samaritan? That's the point of the story. But the story is interesting because it points out two leaders in the Jewish community and one person that the Jews hated and despised, the Samaritans. And the Samaritan ends up becoming the hero of the story. Verse 31 says, And by chance, I love that Jesus said by chance, it just happened to be that there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by another side. Likewise, a Levite, who was a man of a great authority, most likely in Israel, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by another side. Do they have any excuses for not helping? No, because they saw them. They saw the man. They saw the person. And I love that Jesus says, it wasn't like they walked by not noticing him. He saw him. And he passes by. The priest may have been finishing up his week at the temple service and just wanted to get home. Besides, it's not his fault the man was attacked anyway, right? It's not his fault someone robbed this guy. The Levite most likely had the same mindset. I'm just too busy. I don't have time. I love what Warren Worsby, commentator, said about this passage in regards to the Levite following after the priest. Listen to what he said, and I love this. Such is the power of the bad example of a religious man. Man, this Levite could have stopped and helped, and maybe he saw the priest pass by. And following his religious leader's example, Worsby says it this way, such is the power of, a ba- of the bad example of a religious man. So my question to us is this, how are we setting the example in this culture? Are we setting the example of, I don't have time for that? Because Jesus never set that example, by the way. He always stopped and took time. Why? Because he was always compassionate on those in need. Again, it doesn't mean that we don't say the act of this person in this world is wrong and acknowledge it as sin, but what it means is we have compassion on them because they don't have a shepherd. The Samaritan, a group hated by the Jews, and yet the hero of the story the religious didn't want to get their hands dirty, actually serving someone that didn't fit their mold. Maybe they felt like he couldn't give anything back, so I don't want to get my hands dirty. But this is exactly what we are called to do in this world, to engage the culture, the people, to meet them right where they are, and to serve them to the glory of God. Not to find out all their backstory or what they can do for you, or how, do, do they even know Christ. Before you serve them, you've got to find out their spiritual standing. No, no, no. We serve because we have compassion. Why do we have compassion? Because the one that we profess to follow is compassionate. And a natural byproduct is we, too, show compassion on this world. Again, we do this with great wisdom given only by the Spirit of God as we engage the culture. It is not an excuse to sin. I have heard story after story of people trying to engage the culture and get consumed by it. We must be careful, but we must be bold as well. I'll give you an example. I heard a story about a man that was talking to somebody on the side of the road who was drinking strong alcohol, strong drink. And this man decided that the only way I can engage this person is to sit down and get drunk with him. Now, some of you laugh at that. Some of you are like, that's silly. We do similar things in minor contexts, and we have to be so guarded that we don't compromise our stand in the name of evangelism. But if there's no difference between you and them, spiritually speaking, I'm not talking about culturally, but if they don't see a difference in you, then what are you preaching to them? What are you sharing with them? And this is, again, we have to have wisdom. These are tough questions. These are hard questions to ask about our daily life, but we need to ask them. We need to say, how am I engaging the world around me for the cause of Christ? We must engage the world around us. We must intentionally interact and engage their lives and the lives of those around us. While we are battling against the mindsets of, these world, of this world, we must remember the people in the world need a message of salvation. We stand up for what is right, 
but we also treat people around us with the mutual respect they deserve as a created and loved being of God. Please, this week, if you do nothing else to engage the culture, just respect people around you. Just honor them for who they are. Don't turn everything into an argument. Don't fight on every little thing. They disagree with you. All right, have a conversation. But man, respect each other. You can strongly disagree with your neighbor, your coworker, or your family member and friend and still respect them as a person. The problem in our culture today, one of the cultural norms that are not being accepted anymore is that somehow if I disagree with you, I then have to, or then I don't love you. I don't care for you. This is the norm in our culture, one that needs to be rejected. We'll talk about it next week. There's this norm that says, if you accept me and love me, and you say you love me, then you have to accept everything I do as rights. You can't disagree with anything I do, because if you do, that means you don't love me. That is ignorance. It doesn't make logical sense. I can 100% love somebody, but 100% disagree with what they're doing. That's possible. So how do we do that in our culture? How do we respect somebody, maybe disagree with them, but still show compassion on them because they don't have a shepherd? I don't have all the answers, but man, there's a Holy Spirit that's living inside of you that does. And he's going to reveal it to you when you need it as you're engaging the culture. I know the world is crazy and people can fall into thinking and acting like the world is driven only with self, anger, and hatred. However, a quote that I heard, I can't remember the author of it, but I love it. I think it's an encouragement to us as we begin to engage the culture this week. How do we start? How do we begin to encourage people and love them right where they are? I love this quote. It's always kind of stuck with me since college. Be the good you want to see in other people. Be the good that you want to see in other people. You want your community to change? Then be the example. You set the tone and live. Let's be Christ-like in our worlds, but all, in our wor- world, but also in our action. Let's engage the culture with our wor- words and encourage others to follow Christ. We do this with truth, but we do this with love. And I truly believe that as we engage the world around us and we do it in a way that doesn't compromise our beliefs and our stands, but we do it flexible, adapting, maybe changing some things that we once hold so true to, so dear, but they're not really biblical stands. So we can adapt on those things. But we just begin to connect with the culture and engage them. And I pray that others will come to know Christ. And I believe that's what the result will happen. I believe that's what will take place is people will come to know Christ as we are leaving our churches, encouraged, strengthened, and supported to go share Christ with others. Not afraid, not naive, but bold in the Holy Spirit. You don't have to worry about protecting yourself. There's a Holy Spirit that lives within you that will protect you, that will guide you and watch over you. You don't have to worry about, man, God, I'm kind of worried about talking to this person. I'm fearful of sharing Christ with this person. Just do it because he'll give you the strength. In Matthew chapter 10, when he says to go and to go before these wolves as sheep, I love that if you read the passage on, he says, don't even give thought to what you'll say when they drag you before their councils and before their judges. Don't even think about it because in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. I love that. What does that tell us today? When we're put before those persecutions, we don't have to plan and prepare of what we're going to say. We just trust in the Spirit who gives us the words to say when we need them. But here's the key. He gives them to us when we need them. So here's my question. Are we engaging the culture, relying on the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, using wisdom, not fear, but wisdom given by the Holy Spirit? I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. And as you bow your heads there where you are and you begin to pray and and ask God for wisdom in this regard, I want to ask you just really two simple questions. The first question I have to ask is to those, to anyone that doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, To anyone here in this room right now that maybe you've gone to church before, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, maybe you know the Bible, I want to ask you, do you know Christ personally? Have you in your own self, have you accepted the forgiveness of sins? Have you acknowledged your need for a Savior? Have you asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins? Have you surrendered to him and said, Lord, I'll follow you. My life is yours. Just save me. I'm asking you to do a great work in me. However you prayed that prayer, whatever it sounded like, did you ask Christ to forgive you of your sins, believing he died on the cross for your sins, believing that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, believing that he rose again from the grave, that he did all that you need for the forgiveness of sins, it could be a simple prayer. It can be a long prayer. Did, have you acknowledged before God your need for a Savior? 
Have you done that? And so with every head bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around, I just want to ask first question, is there anyone here that has never done that, that would like me to pray for them? I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to come to you later and harass you. I just want to ask, can I pray for you that the Holy Spirit of God will begin to work in your heart and mind, that you will understand that God loves you so much that he gave his son to be the pardon for your sins that you can know Christ personally. And when you leave this world, find heaven as your eternal home. Do you know Christ personally? So I want to ask, with every head bowed, is there anyone that would raise their hand and say, Pastor John, would you pray for me? I don't know Christ, but I'm praying that I'll open my heart to him. I'm praying that I will receive him. Whatever that looks like for you, would you just say, I don't know Christ, would you pray for me? Is there anyone that would raise their hand and say, I don't know Christ, would you pray for me, Pastor John? Anyone at all? Second question, as you continue to pray, there is your seats. I ask the question of how are you engaging the culture around you? How are you stepping outside of your normal day or even in the midst of a normal day and you're purposely, intentionally engaging the world around you? How are you doing that in conversation? How are you doing that in action, serving those around you? And if you would say, man, I'm not really doing that, then maybe you want to come and pray in just a moment and say, God, would you give me wisdom in how to engage my culture? Understanding there's a lot of negative things around me, but also understanding that I need to have compassion. Maybe you're here and you're just not a very compassionate person. You're like, I just don't have that compassion. I tend to get more angry when I see the sin in the world around me than I do have compassion. It's okay to hate sin. It's okay to get angry with what sin does and has done. But when we look at the individual person, there's got to be compassion there for them. So however God is speaking to you, maybe you would come in just a moment and bend a knee and cry out to him and ask him to do a great work. Father, would you move, lead, guide, and direct in and through this invitation. May you be glorified in all these things. Help us to have wisdom as we engage the culture around us for your glory, for your gospel. Father, we need your strength and wisdom and boldness. We can't do it alone. But I pray if there's anyone here that maybe was afraid to raise their hand, I pray that if there's somebody here that doesn't know Christ, that they would accept you as their Savior, put their faith and their trust in you and you alone to cleanse them, to wash them, to forgive them of their sin, and that they would surrender their life to you, realizing the joy and the peace that comes from knowing you. Father, your word says that our sin has to be paid for. We either accept your payment on the cross for our sin or we die in our sin, being sent to a place called hell to pay for our sin on our own. But I pray that we would receive and acknowledge the salvation message for ourselves. Thank you for your love, grace, and for using us in this world. May you be glorified in all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? Short invitation this morning. Would you just respond to him? Whatever God is doing in your life, would you respond? However you feel God is moving, how are you engaging your culture? How are you reaching out beyond yourself?